Well, I'm very happy to be with you again tonight. It's always a privilege and a pleasure for me to worship God with this wonderful congregation and to sing these beautiful songs which we've sung tonight. Thank you, Daniel, for leading us in this, in this singing and leading in such a fine way. And for your participation tonight in our singing, we're very grateful and, and we're very happy that we can be together. Thank you, Joe, for the prayer. We appreciate the prayer very much and we're very grateful for the sentiments of the prayer and we are ready to enter into this portion of our worship by studying the Word of God. We have been looking at different portions of Palestine, and uh, I started last uh, Sunday night talking a little bit about some of the things that Carol and I were able to see and able to do there. And again, I say as I did last time, how very grateful I am for the opportunity and the privilege to go and visit that part of the world. I'd always wanted to go. I'd read so much about it. And I just never really thought that I'd have the opportunity to do it, but we did. And God providentially provided that, and I'm very grateful for it, and, and very grateful for the time that we could leave here and go and visit and come back. Last Sunday night, I talked about the Dead Sea, and we were reading Bible passages about the Dead Sea. And basically, we were looking at pictures of the Dead Sea, and it comes out basically a boundary of territory. It becomes a very important part of ancient Israel, and even modern-day Israel, and I would like to still go from the southern portion of the Dead Sea up to the northwestern end of it to a place the Bible, to a place the people call Qumran. And some, for some 2,000 years, uh, great Bible treasures were actually stored there in the sands, and in modern times they were discovered. And if you think this is sort of a uh, dismissive kind of idea, you might think of it this way. If you could ask the top scholars of the world, list the ten greatest archaeological finds in world history, Qumran would be in that list. Every time I read of a list, I hear of a, a list of great archaeological discoveries, the discussion eventually will come down to the discussion about Qumran. So let me spend just a few minutes in my lesson tonight talking about what happened there. I'll do a couple of things this evening. My lesson tonight won't be a sermon as such. It'll be partly sermon, partly lecture. And I hope, even though these things are very near and dear to me, it will not become tedious to you. But I think it will be very helpful. In 1947, a Bedouin boy was herding sheep and he threw a rock and it went into the cave and he heard a cracking and a jar breaking. Bedouins are part of the landscape of Israel even today. They are the gypsies of the desert. They follow the grass, they follow the water, they herd their sheep, they herd their goats. They live in tents, they're very poor. And you can be driving down the road in Israel in any particular time. You'll see Bedouins herding their sheep over on this side of the road or over on that side of the road. They're all over the place. Gypsies of the desert. They'll take rocks and they'll throw a rock. And when the sheep hear that rock hit the ground, then it'll move them that way. Or they'll take a rock and they'll throw it over here. 
And when the sheep here, the rock hit other rocks, it'll move the sheep that way. And they kind of direct their uh, sheep the way they want them to go, and they're experts at it. In the evening, in 47, shepherd boy took a rock and threw it into a cave. And he didn't hear what he normally would have heard. He heard jars breaking, and it was a little late to go in and investigate. And so he decided that he would wait, him and his friend, I think it was his first cousin, they would go the next day. They went the next day and they opened up one of the jars and you can see this particular jar, which is one of the jars of Qumran, the lid that is there. They opened up the lid and they were anxious to find gold and jewels and gems of all different kinds and they thought themselves fabulously wealthy because of what they'd found. And they were filled with disappointment when they realized that all they found were these leather scrolls wrapped in linen. And so they took them home and they hung them up on the tent poles at the camp and the encampment where they were, not knowing anything about what they'd actually found. Eventually, they worked their way to Bethlehem, and that's the place where you would go and Bedouins would buy the necessities that they have and and the things that they need. And there was a particular cobbler-type guy there in Bethlehem that um, took care of shoes, repaired shoes, but he also dabbled in selling antiquities and dabbled in selling little things that were found here and there. And so these Bedouin boys showed them the scrolls that they had found, and I think they had found seven scrolls altogether, so he bought them for $20, thinking that, you know, maybe I can get some money off of this particular matter. Uh, Eliezer Zukinik is a name that I'll refer to several times in this story tonight, and I'll try to keep it brief. Eliezer Zukinik was one of the great, great archaeologists of the Jewish nation, professor of archaeology at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. You have to keep in mind that in 1947, Israel is not a nation yet. The UN is meeting, and they're going to have a vote, and they're going to decide whether to partition off Palestine and give part of it to the Jews and part of it to the Arabs. The Jews wanted their part. The Arabs didn't want the Jews anywhere around. And it was a real tense time. Uh, Zukinik wanted to go into Bethlehem, having heard of these particular scrolls and manuscripts, and he wanted to look and see what they were, see if there was some kind of value to them, but he decided it was just too dangerous for him to do that. You see, Bethlehem is an Arab territory. If you went to Bethlehem today, you'd have to get an Arab uh, tour guide to take you there. In fact, I was surprised when I went to Bethlehem how huge the city is. I kept thinking in my mind about a little village of Bethlehem, which it was in the days of Jesus. But today it's a huge city. In fact, it's three cities combined together to make a huge area and a huge city. I don't know exactly. I probably did know at one time the population of Bethlehem, but it's under Arab control today. You'd have to have an Arab come and, and uh, uh, take you and escort you there. Jew couldn't do it. Well, that's the way they did for us. He's a very cordial individual that took us from place to place, and I was always asking him questions and this kind of thing, and he was very congenial in answering the questions. Well, Kucinic could not go in because of the time, but it turned out that the UN postponed the vote. 
And they didn't vote at the present whether to partition off Palestine, partly for the Jews and partly for the Arabs. And so he decided, well, since the tenseness is over, I'll go in and I'll go look and see. He goes in and he looks and sees as to the, to the scrolls, and there he secures three of the seven scrolls. Now another name and a player comes into action here, and I'll talk about these men in a minute. His name is Metropolitan Samuel. Metropolitan Samuel was an Armenian type of Christian. I won't take time to explain what that means, but he was an Armenian. When you go to Israel, you see a lot of Armenian influence on the city of Jerusalem and Palestine. And he goes to the cobbler and he says, you know, I think I'll take those off your hands. He says, what do you give me for them? And so they're bartering back and forth and back and forth. And I don't know if you've ever had this occasion, but you don't just walk in and say, what do you take for that? In the ancient, in the East, you have to work into it. You have a cup of coffee, and you talk, start talking about his family, and he starts talking about your family. And after a conversation for a while, you work into this discussion about whether you're interested in that commodity or not, and make a long story short, for $97, he bought the remaining Dead Sea Scrolls. Samuel, uh, Metropolitan Samuel, went back to Jerusalem. He tried to sell them. Nobody would buy them. He went all over Palestine trying to sell the Dead Sea Scrolls. Nobody wanted them. He took them to America and the United States and New York. He's trying to sell the Dead Sea Scrolls. Nobody wanted them. He took out an ad in the Wall Street Journal, New York City. Dead Sea Scrolls found at Qumran. Makes a great Christmas gift for your husband. Trying to sell the Dead Sea Scrolls. Nobody wanted them. Finally, Lucinic is interested and he sees these particular scrolls along with the scrolls that he had, the four remaining scrolls, and he's able to work up a figure which Metropolitan Samuel feels like is a fair figure, $250,000, and he bought the rest of the scrolls. He carries them back to Jerusalem. Now to set that into some kind of context, fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls are sold today. And the cobbler once they learned what they had, now took all of the manuscripts that they could find and all of the fragments that they could find, and they've deposited them in a Swiss bank vault in Geneva, Switzerland. They've been there since the 1960s. Recently, California University bought five postage stamp size fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls for $2.5 million dollars. It was Azusa Pacific University. We have a friend that teaches in their graduate program there at, in education, Azusa Pacific. There was a theology school here on this side of the river that um, was actually, uh, well, I guess on the other side of the river, the river I'm talking about is Mississippi, that bought three fragments from the cobbler's estate that went for a million and a half. What happened was that they began to realize what they had and the Arabs began to tear up into little pieces the remaining fragments thinking that if we can tear them up into little pieces we'll have more of it to sell and we'll make more money. And so that's what they did with much of the Dead Sea Scrolls. They tore them up into little pieces trying to um, get more and more out of them as much as they could. Now, 
I tried to make a long story short here and giving you something of the background as to what happened. And let me take just a moment and show you a little bit about the community of Qumran and what makes this so important. This is what we're looking at here. This is the Isaiah scroll or portion of it. It is a complete copy of the book of Isaiah. Now this has such importance and I won't have time tonight to explain all of it. I'll try to explain a little bit of why this document is so important to us. Liberal scholars were trying to convince us that Isaiah wrote a little portion of the book. There are 66 chapters to the book of Isaiah. And then they said, well, another redactor came along and added to it and changed it. And they called him Deutero-Isaiah. We didn't know his name, so we just called him the second Isaiah writer, Deutero-Isaiah. And then some scholars said, well, it doesn't look like this belongs either. Another editor came in, redacted the material, and added to it. He's Tritzo-Isaiah. And you begin to wonder, did Isaiah write anything or not? And by the time they get through carving up Isaiah, liberal scholarship basically had people convinced Isaiah wrote very little of the present book of Isaiah. However, when we got the Dead Sea Scrolls, guess what? It's all one document. There is no redactions. There are no editors. It's all one book. And we come to understand what we knew all along, that the Isaiah Scroll is by one, one uh, great prophet of God in the Old Testament, the prince of prophets, Isaiah himself. And these people at Qumran had copied it down. Now I'll talk a little bit more about the significance of these particular finds in a minute, but I want to talk a little bit, and there's one of the fragments, and I was talking about the fragments, I'll kind of talk about that more. The area of Qumran is around what's called a wadi. A wadi is a um, kind of a dry riverbed, and when it rains, all the rain comes down and leaches down and collects in the riverbed, and now it's a torrent of water. Uh, rushing down because of the rains that come from other places higher in elevation. It's all coming down. Wadi Qumran. And it's named after this particular wadi. You see one of the, the caves and the hills and the cliffy areas of the Dead Sea area. Now this, Carol took this picture here and I, I liked it because of the greenery that you see there. That's unusual. They have had some rain there. And so you see in this desert area, it will grow if it gets water. And so they'd had some rain in the area, and Wadi Qumran now showing some green grass because of the rain, which we experienced at the time. This is basically what it looked like, and I think Carol made this picture here. Uh, this cave on the left is cave number one. And this is where the Isaiah scroll was first found. As soon as I got out of that car, I couldn't help myself. I had to go. He said, don't you want to go to the community center on the other side of the road? And I don't even think I answered him. I was headed for that cave. And he stopped me and said, you can't go in there. You can't go up there. They don't want you to go up there. And I thought, well, I am a visitor in a foreign land. I better be careful what I'm doing here. But when I saw that, something that I've been reading and studying about all of my adult life, I had to get my hands on that, that spot. It is a series of caves, 11 in all, and thousands of manuscripts have been found. Thousands of fragments have been found with regard to the Bible. Every book of the Bible has been documented in the Dead Sea Scrolls except one, and that is the book of Esther. It's out of that great cave right there on the left side of the screen that they found the great Isaiah scroll. Now, the people of Qumran 
They lived in this very rough, rocky desert land. You can see other caves to the right side of this particular cave. Caves up here on the left side. And they were living in that area. They were herding their sheep. This is cave number four. Now, I didn't take this picture. I got this picture off the internet, but I like this picture because it does show that these people lived inside these caves at the time. Now, what these Jews did was they left Jerusalem. And they were kind of fed up with the way things were going in Jerusalem, and they wanted to create a society whereby they would very faithfully keep the Torah, the Tanakh, the Old Testament, the Word of God. And so they weren't trying to start a new religion. They were trying to very, very feverishly and fervently main, remain faithful to the religion that they had at the time. And they, they developed this community called Qumran, which is named after the Wadi. And they lived out of these caves, and they sustained, sustained themselves off of the land. This particular shot here is a, looking up into one of the caves. It's a very rough, rocky, deserty type of land, which you and I have learned already uh, in our studies looking at um, the Dead Sea. Now, this is the museum, the museum in Jerusalem where the Dead Sea Scrolls are housed presently. You see, it became a race between the Bedouins and the scholars as to who's going to find the remaining fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The whole countryside, that rocky hillside that I was showing you there, is filled with people digging, looking, looking, looking. And you're really not supposed to go up there. Carol did. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> you're really not supposed to go up there because there could be other things to be found, which I would like to do. But anyway... Uh, when they found these particular matters, they brought them back to Jerusalem, collected them as best they could, housed them in this special place called the uh, Shrine of the Book, which is an Israeli museum. Now, I got a story I want to tell about this. My tour guide, I was telling Carol, I said, see the top of the museum there, the roof looks like a top to a jar that was found at Qumran. This looks like a lid. And he stopped me, grabbed me by the arm, and said, how'd you know that? I said, I read in the book. The only thing I know is what I read in the book. He said, you know, they give us oral examinations on being tour guides. We have to pass the oral examination. And one of the questions was, what is unique about the shrine of the book in the Israeli Museum in Jerusalem? And I didn't know what it was. And I, I failed the oral examination. He said, I had to go back, look it up, and see what was unique about it. I said, well, just look at it. You can see what's unique about it. It looks like one of those lids that would sit on the jar that was found at Qumran. And inside, of course, is the great manuscript, the Isaiah Scroll. Now, I showed you a little bit about that. The Isaiah Scroll is like 24 feet long. It's a parchment manuscript, about five and a half, uh, no, about 10 and a half, 11 inches wide. Beautiful manuscript. What you see when you go in is a circular area with the manuscript, but it's a copy. It's not the real manuscript. They took the real manuscript and for safety purposes put it in a vault underneath the ground. And it's super secure. It's uh, supposed to be able to withstand war. It's supposed to be able to withstand uh, attacks and deterioration and that kind of thing. And so we were fortunate in that they took some leaves 
of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the actual scrolls, and put them out there on display. So we actually did see portions of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The actual Isaiah scroll is when you walk in the museum, you see a copy. And that copy is an exact replica of what is down in the vault beneath. But it's a beautiful manuscript. The handwriting is absolutely beautiful. Uh, if you read the book of Galatians, and you see Paul says in the last portion of the book of Galatians, he said, you see what large letters I've written with my own hand? And what he's saying is that an amanuensis or a scribe wrote the letter as Paul would dictate to it, and then he wrote the last part. And his writing is probably rather clumsy and awkward compared to the beautiful handwritten script of the amanuensis, the scribe. And that's what you see when you look at this Dead Sea Scroll. The writing, the handwriting is beautiful. And every letter seems to be placed just exactly right. Let me spend just a moment talking a little bit about why I'm spending so much time and spending so much of your time talking about this matter. The significance of these finds, not only the Isaiah Scroll, but the other manuscripts that we're talking about. Prior to this time, before, we didn't have, the closest Old Testament book we had was like uh, a thousand years after the life of Christ. The oldest Old Testament copies went like a thousand years after Christ. And they were brought to us <coughs> by means of a scribal school known as the Masoretes. The Masoretes would sit in a scriptorium, I'm going to show you a scriptorium in a minute, would sit in a scriptorium and there in the scriptorium they would laboriously copy the manuscripts and a reader would read a phrase and they would write it down. And that's how they would make their copies. And in this instance, the, we wanted to see how good were those copies. And then the Masoretes, they would have a certain symbol. They looked at, at the copy, and they would count the letters. And they knew just exactly how many letters a manuscript should have. And if that, letter, that manuscript didn't have exactly that amount of letters, they destroyed the manuscript. They were that meticulous in their copying. And they knew just exactly where the middle of the manuscript was. And they put a mark in the manuscript called the Athnoch. The Athnoch was the mark where this is the exact middle of this manuscript. And they would compare that with other manuscripts, and they came up with a whole system of vowels in order to preserve the manuscript, to maintain the reading. And what we needed was something that went back before the Masoretes. We need a text that we can look at and compare with what the Masoretes did in the present Masoretic text. And that's what we got at Qumran. We got manuscripts now that went 100 years before the life of Christ. And you're getting back now toward the time of Isaiah himself. And you're getting back in the days of the prophets when the prophets prophesied. And now we've got manuscripts that we can compare with what manuscripts we had before. And what did we find? We found that the manuscripts that the Masoretes had made for us is extremely accurate. In fact, they were amazed at the accuracy, phenomenal accuracy of the Masoretes in the counting of words, 
in the placing of symbols at certain portions of the manuscript to preserve the manuscript and make sure that the manuscript is really what it ought to be. And if the manuscript didn't meet that particular criterion, then of course the manuscript was destroyed. It is amazing, amazing find. And it has helped us grow in faith in our Bible. That when I read the book of Isaiah from my English text, I know I'm reading God's word. Every book of the Old Testament is found in the Qumran collection. This is what Qumran looks like today. Now that guy wanted me to go over and see that. I didn't care anything about that. I couldn't. All I could think about is get up to that cave and see what I can see in that cave. You see in the background? That's the Dead Sea. That's a modern version of Qumran today. They have a visitor center and they have all these things that you can go see and that kind of thing if you're interested in that kind of thing. That's the Dead Sea there. And you can see how desolate the area is. And I have another shot of the Dead Sea, which as I mentioned last Sunday night, shows you just how much of the Dead Sea is drying up. They're losing a foot of the Dead Sea every three months. Eventually there will not be a Dead Sea. But I spent a lot of time talking about that last time. I don't want to talk about that now. I want to talk about the ancient community of Qumran. And there in the ancient committee, the community of Qumran, you see the aqueduct. And they were very skilled at this, bringing their water to the community. And that's what this uh, particular series of rocks and structures is about. How that they brought their water. If it did rain, it would rain like... Uh, four inches a year, they would collect that water in cisterns and bring that water to the community as they needed. Very ingenious way of doing it. This is an ancient scriptorium at Qumran, at the northwest end of the Dead Sea. The scriptorium is a place where scribes, professional handwriters, would go and sit at long tables. And as they sit at the tables, they would take their inks, which they had made, and their vellum manuscripts, leather-type manuscripts, and they would write on the manuscript the things which the, um, the reader would tell them. And this is the remains of ancient Qumran. I like this particular photo because it is an inkwell, which was found at Qumran in the scriptorium, and there they would dip their pen, called a stylus, into the inkwell, and in a metallic type of ink they would sort of paint on the vellum manuscript the message that they wanted to, to write and preserve, which we have today. Qumran was destroyed by the Babylonians, 600 BC. That's about when they destroyed the city of Jerusalem. It was resettled in about 130 BC. Earthquake was very massive in 31 BC. There in turn, the whole Dead Sea areas involved on a massive fault line. Then in 4 BC, they go back and they're trying to rebuild the community of Qumran and they last till about 68 AD when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD and in turn Masada in 73. Now you might want to ask me the question, what are we going to get out of all this? Are we just interested in this for history's sake? It's not really worth much if all we're concerned about is just the history of it. Oh, I enjoy history like the next guy. I enjoy reading about it and studying about it. But what does it teach me? 
Is there a lesson to be learned here? And I've got two in my mind that I want to share with you tonight. As I mentioned a moment ago, the people of Qumran, they didn't go there to start a new religion. They went there to preserve the religion that they had, and they took it very seriously. They actually called themselves the children of light. And those who are not a part of the children of light are the children of darkness. And many of the manuscripts that we found at Qumran talk about how they lived and what you were expected to do and what you were expected to believe in. And there were a lot of manuscripts like that. It wasn't Bible uh, copying as it was, this is what we believe, this is how we live, this is what we do. And what they were doing was settling a community of believers whereby they devoted themselves to God and they thought of themselves as being different. We are different from the world. We do not live like the world. We do not behave like the world. We do not act like the world. Now, the New Testament uses a word there to convey that idea. It's called sanctified. A New Testament Christian is a sanctified child of God because of his obedience to the gospel of Christ. And he lives a sanctified life. And we emphasize the importance that when we become a child of God, we just don't live any way we choose to. We live the way the Bible tells us to live. Turn with me tonight to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, at about verse 14, you're going to find Paul writing along these lines. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? You see, the focus, separate yourself from the ways of the world, from the culture of the world, and don't be like the ways of the world and the culture of the world. Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Continuing with verse 16. For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said. I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Now I'm in 17. Therefore come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty, verse 18. If you'll notice what Paul is saying about living a sanctified life and not being so involved in the ways of this world, it sounds a lot like the people at Qumran, where the people at Qumran were trying to say, we don't want to be like everyone else. We want to be separate from everyone else. And that's commendable. But the second thing I want to share with you tonight is the fact that these people are to be pitied because they went about it the wrong way. The way they went about it was, we're going to take ourselves out of the culture. We're going to take ourselves out of the, out of the world. And we're not going to live like the world. We're not going to be like the world. We're going to separate ourselves from the world and divide ourselves off into just a little cloister, a little group of people that live all by themselves. And they miss the point altogether. In Matthew chapter 5, you have Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew chapter 5, you'll see a very familiar passage as I turn to it, verse 14 through 16. And he has this to say with regard to our life. You are the light of the world. 
A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying, don't take the light out of the world, put the light in the world. Live separate from the darkness, but don't run from the darkness. Be involved in living as a Christian should live and influence others to do the same. They took the light out. Jesus says, take the light in. Take the light to the world and let the world see that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Don't hole up in a desert community and say, if you want to wait on the Messiah, come with us and live like we do, separate and apart from everybody else. That's sort of the modern monastic, monastic and monastery type of lifestyle today. But that's not what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is one who takes the light and lets the light shine so other men can see what he's doing and glorify God in heaven. Now, in John chapter 17, Jesus spoke about this very matter, and I want to read a verse or two for you in verse 13. There the Bible tells us, but now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one, that they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth, verse 17. And so his point here was, as he prays to God, he says, I'm not asking that you take disciples and exclude them from the world. But I ask that they let their light shine, that they have an influence in the world, so by they can, they can teach others about the way of the Christ and the way of New Testament Christianity. And that's the pitiable part of the people of Qumran. Was it commendable for them to live a separate life? Yeah. Was it commendable for them to live in an area whereby they said, we do not want to live like the world. We have seen it. We don't want to have anything to do with it. It's not in keeping with what we read in the sacred scripture, and in turn, we're going to stay away from that. But it's a pity. It's a pity that they could not see the teaching of Jesus when he says, take the light out into the darkness. Let the people see that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And let people know that the gospel is there for every man, woman, boy, and girl of accountability. That they in turn may repent of their sins and confess their faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And the only access we have to God. And to be baptized, that is, immersed in water, into Christ, for the remission of our sins, as the Bible teaches in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. That's our mission. Live like Christ would have us to live, a sanctified life. But let us carry the light into this sin-saturated world. Let the world come to see 
Jesus living in us. Lessons from Qumran. I'm grateful for the scribes at Qumran. It helped me grow in faith because of what they did. But I'm also grateful that I can learn from Jesus. Carry the light. And don't cloister yourself away from the world. Don't be a part of the world. But at the same time, let the world see Christ living in you. If you're not a child of God tonight, I urge you to become one. If you've never named the name of Christ as your Savior, and in turn been baptized in water for the remission of your sins, I urge you to do it now. Won't you come? While together we stand and while we sing.